let's pray and then we'll look into Mark chapter 10 this morning. Father, it is with great honor we come before you, Lord, knowing that you know everything. You're in control of all things. You, you know what's happening in, in Paul and Jenny and Abby's life, Lord, and you saw them through. And as Paul's own testimony, he felt as though you had cradled his family as they uh, rolled down the highway. And Lord, we thank you for that kindness that you spared their lives and and, and thus that ministry in, in Congo as well. And so, Lord, we're we very grateful, Lord. But we ask that you would meet their needs, Lord. We thank you for our men and women who serve in the military, particularly our men and women who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for them, Lord. Give them ministry. It is, it is a place where the gospel is so needed, Lord. And we ask that you would continue to encourage them, Lord. We thank you for the scriptures that we can open them with with great humility, knowing that we're dealing with the precious Word of God, but yet boldness to know that in our hands, sitting on our lap, is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. It's not fallible like our words, but it is infallible. It is without error, and we can trust it. And so this morning, as we look into your Word, we ask that you would pierce our hearts, cause us to love you deeper, cause us to understand the great finished work that you accomplish in our lives to give us salvation. And we pray that this word would not return void today, Lord. Father, we do remember our missionaries around the world, Lord. We pray for compassion for Congo and Didier and the other pastors in Congo, Lord, particularly as we think about that this morning as they uh, grieve over the injuries and the loss that Paul has uh, suffered. Lord, I pray that you would help that ministry know that there's many that stand behind them. Uh, doing ministry in an area that's very difficult. So please, we pray for them and our other missionaries around the world. Give them favor, Lord. Now, Lord, give us joy as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. To begin the sermon, I take your mind and your thoughts towards the end of the Bible, and I want to read to you just Revelation chapter 21, a few verses. Listen as I read these. John said this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. And there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Revelations 21 and 22 are an almost unimaginable description of our eternal destiny, the eternal state, where man resides with God and sin is done away with and all the things that sin affects us, the pain and hurt and destruction that sin brings into this life, they're all gone and they are all done away with. The Lord is the the bright and shining star. There's no need of sun and star and moon. He himself illuminates all of that exists now. 
He is our God and we bow before him. And what a description is there as you look at the eternal state in those texts. But our eternal destiny, our eternal state begins by simple faith alone like a child. All that I just described and just read is given to us through the simplicity of a childlike faith. It is not something that is brought with goods and offerings and and all of a list of things that have been accomplished on our own. All that will be gained of Revelations 21 and 22 is gained by a God-given, childlike faith. And it is an amazing statement. And so in today's text, we want to be reminded of these truths. That salvation is a gift from God. He does not want your works. He does not want your supposed goodness. He wants to grant you faith. So you'll believe. So you'll repent and turn to him. I think this text hits four major things. It helps us understand that Jesus loves the family, first and foremost, in this text. Jesus loves the family. He loves marriage. He loves children. He designed these things, not man, ourselves. It also is going to challenge us of the dangers of religious pride that block the understanding, that can be an obstacle to the understanding of a childlike faith that saves us. Third, we'll see that there's a kind of faith that allows us to be a part of a greater kingdom. We become his subjects. We become part of a kingdom that he rules. And God grants faith to do that. And then finally, as the text ends, we'll feel the warm embrace of a savior. He's amazing. He spiritually wraps his arms around each and one of his children and blesses them and Brings them to himself. So let's get started this morning. Number one, Jesus loves the family. Jesus loves the family. Both Matthew and Mark place this event directly after Jesus' teaching on divorce. And it's a balance uh, to the opposition that just was encountered. These Pharisees came and they began to try to trap and tempt and push Jesus into some unbiblical argument. And Jesus now turns to that statement that he just made on marriage and divorce. He set the record right, what God says about it. And he turns to this incident, this simple trust of faith that is pictured often in children. This event, uh, this event once again displays a picture of an affectionate Savior. Jesus is an affectionate Savior. And he's particularly affectionate towards children. And this, this is a treasured text down through the ages. In the late 1800s, a woman named Claire Woolston wrote that little song. Do you remember this song? Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. We can't do this now anymore because it's, it's uh, politically incorrect. <laughs> um, no matter what their ethnic diversity is, she goes on to say, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. Of the world. This is the text that motivated Claire to write that song, and many of us grew up singing that in Sunday school and vacation Bible schools. And 
and throughout our ministries because we understand that, that God demonstrated something uniquely in this passage. But it's much greater than children. It's much greater. I think what is beautiful here is that after the address on the biblical view of marriage and divorce, Jesus turns to these children. And you think about that, that um, in many cases, children suffer the greatest from divorce. You remember last week's lesson as we looked through this and we were reminded that, that they had turned marriage and divorce into their own playing field. They would divorce for any reason. They just got a certificate. It was more of a legate. If you get the certificate, you're good. It doesn't matter why or when or how or who's affected by it. And it isn't hard to understand if you've been affected by divorce in one way. These people suffer just like you and I have suffered from divorce. And it was all coming down from a religious view. We began to understand that you can just imagine the suffering that went on. This has been going on for a long time, this whole divorce marriage thing. Remember they said, Moses permitted us to write certificates of divorce. So that takes you all the way back to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible, all the way back to that history. Think how many children were affected through this down the years. Because mom burnt dinner and a certificate of divorce was issued. And, and so it's amazing that our Savior turns immediately to those who are possibly affected the most. The early church was no better. We'll see here uh, shortly in the text that the New Testament teaches on marriage and family over and over and over because it was a constant problem. They had not grasped the beautiful picture that God had laid out in the garden of what marriage meant. Notice in verse 10 excuse me, in verse 13, the Bible says this, and they were bringing children to him. They were bringing children to him. Uh, the word they here is a, an impersonal pronoun, meaning it's, it's indescriptive, and so it could be fathers who were bringing children. It could be mothers or older sisters or, or anyone else bringing children to him. And, and the children is, a, is an indefined word as well. The same words used of a, a little girl back in Mark chapter 5, who was at least 12 years old. And so you can imagine, I hope you can see the scene here. The scriptures allow us to see this scene of, of children from babies to maybe pre-adolescent. Luke's account of this in Luke 18, verse 15 says, they were bringing even babies to him so that, they, so that he would touch them. So you have an array of families showing up. What, what motivated this? Uh, for me, I, I thought about this this week, and I thought, oh Lord, you just taught on the beauty of marriage. The God-ordained institution that, that what God has put together, no one should separate. And all of a sudden, in response to that, here comes these families. Here comes these people. And they're coming to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe they had felt the pressure of the religious society. They had suffered under divorce themselves. And now they're here to bring their children before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also important to remember the time frame that's going on here. Jesus is on his way to where? Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. And on this way, here he takes time to deal with 
what society would call the most innocent, but he is in a time of teaching. He is in a, a, a very in-depth time of teaching these disciples. He wants them to know how to lead this church that's going to be birthed in Acts chapter 2. And so it's a primary of just, uh, uh, instruction time. And this was no different. These disciples had a poor view of marriage and poor view of divorce, and now that's affected their view of children. It's not hard to read a little bit of history on this. Um, as I mentioned last week, wives were kind of a property during the ancient world. Well, children were too. Dad's great, great pride that they could produce many offspring. It was a, it was a status. It was a, a, even a, a financial status showing that you had great wealth because God had blessed you with great children. Certainly not in every case, but it was a problem. And sin had confused, much like it does today. And, and, and children were not treasured for what God had given them. The, the Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. They're an inheritance of the Lord. They're, they're, they're not just there for a status symbol. Your kids, your grandchildren, these children that are blessed to us, they are directly given to us by God. And yet in some cases, they were just part of a status. And sin confuses things. It teaches us to maybe treasure children. Let's go the other way. If today, children are often treasured over their marriage. Relationships with moms or dads and their children becomes more important than even the marriage. And unfortunately, we go back to the, next pa- the last passage and suffer so much divorce because parents get done with their children and they don't know how to love each other. Their time has been dumped into their children and then when they find themselves alone, there's great confusion. You can see this in this scene. This men or men, man, man and women have not changed. We are sinful creatures. And you can imagine the, the problems that were coming in front of Jesus, even in this setting. And let me just say this to add that, to finish that thought. Everything gets out of balance when the family is not handled God's way. And you and I, when we find ourselves sideways with God, we need to repent of that. Lord, I do not love her like you intended me to love, and this will affect my children. Will you forgive me? Will you help me love her correctly? Would you help me love her as Christ loves the church? Wives, repent of sin, of a hard-hearted, of not lining your affairs up under your husband. That's God's order. That's God's design. It reflects beautiful, the beautiful relationship between Christ and the church. When that doesn't happen, trouble comes each and every time. When emphasis is put on children and marriage is de-emphasized, the relationship to the husband and wife is not protected and all effort is put into the children, nothing but destruction follows often those ways. So everything gets out of balance when the family is not handled God's way. Notice back in our text in verse 13, he says, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples Rebuked him. Notice a little phrase, so that. It's a great little phrase. There's a reason Jesus is doing this. It denotes a reason for it. He might touch them. There's this beautiful scene here. The Lord wants them close to him. Matthew records even a fuller statement in its, uh, its recording of this event. Matthew 19, 13 says, so that he might lay hands on them and pray for them. 
Again, Jesus has just campaigned for marriage in the home. And, and upon that powerful instruction, here comes families. And, and he's, he, remember, he taught. He went back to the garden. He taught what God said about marriage. He taught the relationship between man and woman. And, and even in that relationship, we think about Genesis 2.24. There, the Bible says that a man will leave his father and mother. Right there is already a mention of a family before there was a family. God had designed for a mom and dad to, to raise children, and there's a point where those children leave that family and they cleave to one another. Leave and cleave, such important roles. And they cleave to one another. And so Jesus loved the family, and he loves these children. Now he is campaigning for the family with these children here. But here, they want Jesus' blessing on their children. Notice that. They're desiring that. When I studied this text, it makes me wonder if there was an attack on marriage back then as much as there is today. I think maybe more. If your religious leaders did not care enough to support marriage and would hand out divorces of, uh, certificates of divorce so easily, trust me, a marriage was on full attack back then. But boy, is it an attack today, isn't it? We're fools for, from the world's point of view to talk about marriage like we do. We're fools to talk about a man who would lay down his life for this woman. We're fools about a talk about a woman who would lay down her life to submit to her husband. We're fools to talk about raising children and pointing their children to Jesus Christ alone as their only salvation. We're fools in the eyes of the world. But that's what God taught. The New Testament teaches us as well. I want to go to a passage in Colossians chapter 3 and reiterate these truths. I know the go-to text is often Ephesians chapter 5 when we speak of the family, but this is a parallel text and has just as much emphasis on the family. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 and down. Jesus Jesus has so impacted, the words of Christ have so impacted Paul that he says in verse 16, let the words of Christ richly dwell, in, dwell with you. Paul knows that the words of Christ, and this would be it, coming from Mark chapter 10, he wanted these words to richly dwell. And so he, so he starts out with a, a very general statement in verse 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed... Now think about that, whether you're a wife, whether you're a husband, whether you're a child, whether you're single, whether you're rich, poor, whatever you do is a way of vocation, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it worthy of his glory. You like your job? Are you grateful God gave it to you? Do you do it for his glory? Husbands, wives, children, singles, all that God has given you, do you do it for his glory? Giving thanks, to, giving thanks through him to God our Father. And then he begins to say, well, here's some things to think about in whatever you do. First, wives, be subject, hupotasso, line your affairs up under your husband, as is fitting to the Lord that which brings glory to God. The submission of a wife honors and magnifies God in a unique way that men don't get to do that. It's uniquely given to the role of a woman to show the church what 
Christ desires in the relationship between them. Husbands, verse 19, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Husbands are taught to agapeo their wives. Wives are taught to phileo their husbands. Give them affection and love them. But husbands, you are to have an unconditional love for them. Lay your life down for them. The opposite is that you embitter them. You provoke you don't care for, you don't meet needs, and, and they're left in an embittered state. He's challenging them. What are you doing? Are you bringing glory to God in these roles? This family is important to God. It's important to Christ. He turns to children. Be obedient to your parents in all things. Children, you want to know how to glorify God? Obey your parents. It's pretty simple. In fact, other places says you'll live long in the land. The opposite is, you'll figure it out. children obey your parents this is our job to obey now just strict obedience by with no motivation won't work but you do it for his name for his glory children wives you submit for his name for his glory husbands you lead in love for his name and for his glory this is the role he's given us verse 21 fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart dads we hurt the faith of our children at times. They look to us to understand God. They look to us to see how God is, acts and, and then what He does. And though we are fallen and we are not perfect like God, we are that testimony of Him as Christian men. And so He says, don't exasperate them. Don't push them beyond what they know and understand and how they can function in this family. Be kind and gentle and loving. Talks with slaves or employees or those who serve in different ways and all things obey those of your earthly masters. Remember, the family was often made up not just mom, dad, and children, but there were servants in the home. And so your role may have been a servant. <laughs> well, I don't want to be a servant. Well, I don't want to be 5'9 either. I want to be 6'4 and, you know, 250. But that's where God puts us. It's a rejection of what he has chosen for us. Well, I don't make enough money. I don't have the job I want. Tell it to God. He tells you in your situation, whatever it may be, you're part of a bigger plan. I love the church. I love the church because it's so diverse. I've said this a million times. You and I probably wouldn't be friends if it wasn't for Jesus. I know I wouldn't be here. I probably used to be in California. God brought us together through Christ. There's rich and poor in this room. There's healthy and, and those who struggle with health. There's all kinds of diversity ethnic-wise. God brings us together. We're part of something greater. We do this together to, bring, to be part of this work that brings glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because he saved us from our sins. And so he says, don't do it for just outward appearances. In verse 20, 23, he comes right back to where he started. Whatever you do, wife, husband, child, slave, whatever your job is, whatever God has designated you to do on this earth, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And brothers and sisters, anytime we start to fail, it's because we're not working for the king. We're working for something else. 
I'm trying to get, get her to give me what I want instead of working for Jesus. Serving my Savior who took me and robbed me from hell's gates. Do this heartily. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of an inheritance. Can you imagine maybe some of these moms coming with their children in this text? They have maybe been rejected by not only one man, but maybe multiple men have written them certificates of divorce. They don't have much, but this rabbi is different than the other rabbis. This rabbi cares, and so I'm going to bring my child to this rabbi because all the men that I've ever been with or ever seen have left me. And they don't care about my children, so I'm going to go to this rabbi. His name's Jesus. I've heard he's done amazing things. And maybe he can just put his hand on my child's head. What a, what a difference, isn't it? And there's so many people who have suffered things, I promise that God's word says here, press on, dear saint, and you will receive a reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And he sees the wrongdoing in 25, and he will set the record straight. Back to our text in Mark chapter 10. I think the second truth that Jesus is teaching here is that religious pride makes getting to Jesus difficult. Notice in verse 13, he says, but the disciples rebuked them. It's possible that some of the disciples had gone outside after this discussion, this instruction on marriage and divorce, and they were intent on protecting Jesus from unnecessary or perhaps improper invasion upon Jesus' time and energy. Maybe, maybe they felt that was their job. There's always that person, right? Pastor, I'm going to guard you from these people because you don't need time with them. <laughs> or, or, you know, we're going to keep these kids out of here. Some people just take that role thinking that they have to be the church lady or, or whatever. There's just, sometimes we feel like, oh, I've got I to do this. And, and of course, maybe this is what's happening. These, these disciples have said, we know better than Jesus, right? At least we could say from the text that it's not easy to get to Jesus at this point. They're making it difficult. And they acted as an in an overbearing sense of their importance as his protector, as though the king of glory, the creator of all things, needs to be protected. But often, I think we shield people, and especially children, away from the truth by setting a tone of religious superiority. And we do it unknowingly. Maybe it's how we lack patience with families attempting to have their children in church. Maybe, maybe that's an area. We, we, they're fidgety. They're children. <laughs> they're listening to this guy that's really loud, and I don't understand what he's saying. But they're there. Are we patient with them? Or, or, or are we bothered, and we parents feel the sense or tone coming from others that the children aren't welcome in, in whatever setting it may be? That's religious superiority. We need to stop those things. We can show our pride by being embarrassed of our children when they don't perform the way we want them to. I remember my dad looking down that row of seven chairs and five children of that time, and you got that eye, boy, it was over when you got home. And I feared my God, I feared my dad, not my God. 
Yes, our children are in a whole different sanctification process than we are right now. But we often want our children to be farther along that process. And when they do not show those fruits of what we would like them to be, we are disappointed with them and they feel that. And so the gospel is now separated from them. We are in a sense hazing them and blocking them from the truth because we said it's more important for you to please me than God. Children feel that all the time. And though they are just as sinful as we are and they need a Savior, we often mar the way to Christ. Lack of concern for their hearts will always make us parent the outside. Lack of concern for their hearts and what's going on will make you work on behavioral, external behavior versus the heart of our children. And we'll teach moralism versus the gospel. That will not save them. What about if we change our thinking and we, as parents and grandparents and those that are here, make going to church a joyous occasion? I I so much appreciate it, my wife. I've never got to go to church with my wife. Um, That's probably good sometimes. (laughs) I don't know. I hear people fight on the way to church. Is that true? Um, We've never fought on the way to church because we've never gone to church together. Uh, I'm always here very early, so at least I can... Show a little self-righteousness there, can't I? But what about this? I remember Gina doing this with the boys growing up because waking four boys up and getting them excited about going to church and hearing their dad talk for the umpteenth time is not always enjoyable. But I remember Gina setting a tone in our home on Sunday mornings as I was leaving. Music that was honoring to Christ thinking about what we are about ready to go engage in, teaching the children that the church is gathering. And in that case, and it was gathering from California and Nevada and Oregon and coming in from the desert and ranchers that were coming in and spending the day at church. It was a, it was a neat thing that would happen and helping the boys realize this is an amazing event. See, you don't want to mar the gospel of your children. Make this a great event. Moms, dads, grandparents, all those people that maybe we have done our job and our children out of our home. How is this circumstances here in this church when they walk in? Are children greeted and warmly welcomed? Are our young families, do you look at them and say, I am so glad you're here? And let me go a step further. Are you willing to say, I hope you do a better job showing Christ to your children than I did? Because if we're honest... Maybe we did not do what we wish we would have done. How about encouraging those young families? Hey, we love Florida. There's a tremendous a lot of retired people here. But look at this church. Look at the diversity that's in it. We're begging God to keep us diverse as leaders, as elders here. We love our elderly that come and retire in Florida and become a part of this church. We're so grateful for it. But there's a lot of families that are in the fight right now. There's a lot of uh, transitional families. that Kids are leaving homes. They're here. They need encouragement so we don't mar the gospel. Again, religious pride is humbled only by the gospel. Notice in the text, the, re- the disciples rebuked them. It's a strong word. It's used in Matthew 16, 22 when Jesus, when, excuse me, when Peter rebukes Jesus. It means to expose error. This is weighty, isn't it? So the disciples are saying, this is erroneous if you think you're going to get to Jesus. Notice just back a chapter, Mark chapter 9, verse 36. This just happened on their way back 
to Capernaum before they were going to make this final trip, this final push to the cross in Jerusalem. So this just happened maybe not more than a few months ago. Taking a child, verse 36 of chapter 9, he set them before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. He just taught them that. Now there's a rebuke going on outside the door of the house where Jesus is. So you wonder sometimes why children's ministry is hard to recruit for. It's probably the most difficult thing to do to get nursery workers and those who will work with the tremendous twos. It's difficult at times. But I love this passage because it reminds us that God's in it. And if he was here, if he was here, he would go down to the tremendous twos and have them climb into their lap and hold them. That's what he would do. He would engage with our children's ministries he does here. And so I, I've learned to understand the love that Jesus has for children and for particularly for the family here. Well, here they are rebuking him. But guess who's watching? Look at verse 14, the beginning of it. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. <laughs> Jesus is watching this. And, and this is a sharp response, isn't it? He's indignant. It's a great reminder that Jesus is always watching. I think that's both encouraging and challenging. When David repented, he used clear terms that God watched him sin. It's a good reminder for believers. But it's also encouraging that Jesus is always watching. He loves us. We are his family. We are his children. We are his flock. He keeps track of us. But he's watching this moment. And the Bible says he's indignant. It means much displeased. It's only used here in its certain form carries the idea of strong emotions and listen to this the greek word denotes denotes pain it brought pain to the lord for what his disciples were doing i never saw that before i love the original languages and studying and syntactical structure and diagramming stuff because you see this and you go man my lord was in pain over this I hope we don't cause him pain in our children's ministry, our marriages, and so forth. He's watching us. And these very men that he had taught these truths just just shortly ago in a private setting, they now are, are, are guarding the children from getting to him. Notice the statement in the rest of the verse. He says, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. It's a double command. It's both imperative. He says, first, permit them, and then don't restrict them. It's a very serious statement. Let them come, meaning let them continually come. The verb is continue. Just let them come. Let them keep coming. Don't stop them. Let them keep coming. I love that. I pray for that here. Lord, bring us families. And young families don't have a ton of money. And if you want to build your ministry around young families, you're going to really need to trust God. (laughs) And I know a lot of our young families give, and they're doing their best. But, But we got to love that. That's what the Lord loves. And I love that when I looked at that verb and I said, wow, he's not just saying, hey, let that group in. He says, let them continually come to me. Do not restrict them. Keep the flow coming. I want you to learn something here. Do not hinder them. The word hinder means that they possibly were doing something like this. (laughs) No, children, you're not going down that hall. You're not going to Jesus. It's actually physical. Boy, will we 
I pray that our religious pride does not get in the way of showing children the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, the kingdom of God and his royal subjects. This is really the, the, the heart of this message here now as we turn to the middle of 14. He says, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. And then he makes this phrase, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I want to deal with just that little word, such, first. It's a demonstrative adjective here. And it denotes that those who have a certain defined qualities or characteristics... He's, he's denoting something about these children. And Jesus was, I, I, would, I, I think I'm in good company here. He's not just talking about these children, but talking about these children as an example. I wrote in my notes, he said, I said this, he said, he's speaking of the spirit of receptivity. Children have a spirit of receptivity. We did uh, lots of ministry to children in our early years in ministry. We went off to do five to seven vacation Bible schools a summer, um, traveling around the deserts of Nevada, Oregon, and Northern California, putting on vacation Bible schools to communities where there were no church, and we would, by the grace of God, gain every child in that area to come. And I never met a child who said there was not God. (laughs) There is no God. And years and years of camp ministry and children's ministry, all those years that Gina and I served in those capacities, we never met children that walk in and said, there is no God, we evolved. They don't say that until somebody lies to them long enough and loud enough. There's an innate sense in children to know there's a God. They're still lost. They still need to be saved. They still need to understand the gospel and, and by the grace of God, receive that and turn, repent and turn from their sins. But they know there's a God. God's made that innate to man. It isn't until you lie long enough and loud enough as man start to reject that. But I think what Jesus is talking about is there's a spirit of receptivity here with these children. There's a spirit of dependency. Children are dependent upon you. We just read an article. Someone left a little girl in a dumpster the other day and they found this little baby. And by the grace of God, somebody found her. Because what happens? It dies. It is absolutely, totally dependent upon someone to parent it. There's a dependency. There's also a truth, a spirit of trustfulness children have. This is what he's talking about, such as these. There's a spirit of trustfulness. I trust God. Just like a parent trusts, a, a child trusts its parent. And God's kingdom is composed, and I want you to think about this, composed of those who possess childlike characteristics. I receive you, God. I'm dependent upon your son's work. I trust your word. That's what the kingdom of God is full of. And the kingdom of God in this world consists of those who reject self-will and independence for the will of God and trust in his wisdom and his goodness to bring us to the eternal state. See, this is the attitude of a child. What child would come to a parent without his arms stretched out? Yesterday at our community group, little Willow, I think she's two, somewhere like that. Glenn went to pick her up and and she just puts her arms out. 
I got nothing but sticky fingers, Dad, but I need you. I, I can't offer you anything. I'm two. <laughs> I, I can't make you love me. I, I don't have any money. My attendance isn't even that good. <laughs> I often do what I want to do. I'm not working on Willow here. I'm working on us, children. <laughs> I just need you. That's salvation. This is what our Lord and Savior is trying to get across to us. This is what we do. We stretch out our arms to a, to a God who God alone can save us. I'm empty-handed. I'm just sticky with sin. That's all I got. And you can rescue me. On the contrary, as we'll see next week with the rich young ruler, the person who believes that he or she is somehow worthy of God's favor and the acceptance into the kingdom somehow depends on their social or religious rank, they will never, ever enter the kingdom of God. And if you're here today and you say, oh God, I've been a good person, I've never done this, I help people, I do all that list, your hands are full coming to God and say, look God, receive this. And you'll never see his kingdom. The word kingdom of God is an interesting word, isn't it? It clearly relates to the present, it's present tense, to the present rule of God in his followers' life. We are in his kingdom, not ours. So we come the way the king tells us to come. That's the problem with Christianity so often. We change the rules. And we won't teach a clear gospel because we won't teach on sin because that doesn't put people in the seats. So we change the rules and we say, well, you can come and just be faithful. Give money, do attendance, love people around you, be charitable. We teach a lot of things, but we don't ever teach come empty-handed, totally desperate for Jesus Christ to save you. And without him, you go to hell. We just don't teach that anymore. And so we have a changing God now in our Christian culture, a changing Bible in our Christian culture. We are absolutely dependent on him. And we are subjects to his rule, his way. He's the king of kings. He's the ruler of all. We bend our knees to him. And we come his way. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. He starts with this phrase, truly I say to you, this is Christ setting the record straight. There's any doubt how you're going to come, how you're going to be saved. There's just any question, I'm going to tell it to you right now. Truly I say it to you. And so we should listen. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. Again, he's back to this attitude of a child. The point of comparison is not about the innocence of children. This is not what this text is about. For all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Our children are conceived in sin. David said, I was brought forth in sin. I went astray from my youth. We're born in sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But it's talking about an attitude of receptiveness, a willingness to be dependent upon our Lord in order to see the kingdom of God. The word receive stresses a definite act. 
The kingdom of God must be accepted as a gift, not a human achievement. It's, it's never gained on the base of human merit. Can you imagine a little child, you know, receiving a, 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 a gift from grandpa? And, and she's two. Well, hold on, grandpa. Let's see if I got a fiver for that. What kind of kid is this? You know your children. Presents? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> grandma and grandpa are here. They got presents. And they gladly receive that without giving you anything in return. And I know parents just don't know. They give me so much joy. The point is they have nothing to offer you. You're giving them a gift. And this is what happens in so much false teaching is that Jesus Christ's gift really does cost. And people are deceived in that. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. I know this is a familiar passage, but we've got to look at this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I want to get your finger on it in your Bible. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved. This passage is about our deadness and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, you have no spiritual pulse. You're dead. You work with the sons, the one who works in the sons of disobedience. You're, you're under the wrath of God. You're, you're calloused against him. I mean, it is just a, ooh, the first three chapters. But God who makes us alive, and this is a result of it, for by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is. I need you, Jesus. <laughs> and it's only by the grace of God that I can even request that. Because on my own, I would never request your grace. I would come to you with my own stuff. That's when you got saved. When God said, look, I'm going to open your mind, and you're going to beg for grace because you're going to come to repentance of your sin, and you're going to turn to me. And so far by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, lest you stand before me someday and boast how you got into my gates. And many people will do that. Pilgrim's Progress is about the journey of people to the great kingdom. Men get there and they go, well, I've done this. And they're ushered to another gate. It is only those who come by faith alone, through God's grace alone, seen as the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, a very gift from God, given, wrapped, given to you with no strings attached. It cannot, verse 9, be the result of works. You cannot work enough to save yourself. Luther said he was the best monk. He prayed more prayers. He burned more candles. He did everything he could, and at the end, he could not get over the wretchedness of his sin. And he finally read the book of Romans. And God brought him to his knees. It's not the result of works so that one may boast before God. But we are his workmanship, verse 10. Isn't that beautiful? The master's at work. He's bringing you to repentance. He's bringing you to salvation. He's clearing your sinful mind and your sinful heart so that you can know that Jesus died for you. He's taken away all your own efforts that you've done something to get it. That's his workmanship. He's working in that. So that when you stand before him, you say, Jesus, I'm only here because of you. I'm only here because you did something that I could not do. 
We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The result of this workmanship is now we're here. We love preaching. We love to sing of him. We try to die to self and be kind to children and young families and older people. There's, there's new stuff coming out of us. And we begin to realize he did all this prepared in advance so we would walk in them. This is the essence of the doctrine of justification by faith. I am declared righteous because God granted me faith so I could repent of my sins. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. This is the narrow gate. This is the narrow gate. You don't get through the turnstile with your luggage of good works. You come in bare. Maybe some sticky hands. Nothing with you. Which gate have you come in? Where have you come from? Notice he says, you will not enter at all. It's a double negative. He's, real, re, re, he's helping people realize this childlike faith, if, it doesn't, if you don't come that way, you will not at all, not even a foot across the gate of the kingdom of God. It means he refuses to receive anyone into his kingdom who tries to exchange his free gift with something. This is the king of kings' ways. This is the way he works. One more verse before we just conclude with a short last point. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. He says this, For, he, for we also once were foolish ourselves. I love Paul. He, just, he doesn't forget. He doesn't, he doesn't hold under guilt of his past sins, but he wants to remember what Jesus has done for him. So he says often, for we also once were foolish ourselves. So we could read this verse together with Paul. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved in various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful and hating one another. And you say, well, I'm not that. Let me tell you that. That's a good religious description of people as well. Because you could spend your life not bending the knee to God, but going to church. You can spend your life in church deceived of what it takes to get in the kingdom. You could be enslaved by your own lust and your own desires of wanting to come to God your way and wanting your little life and white picket fence to turn out the way you want it. You can be enslaved with that and without being the crazed, immoral person that we often think this verse talks about. Spending our life in malice and envy well, did you see what she wore today? Did you see what he drove today? That happens in churches. Envious. Upset with people, they leave. That's why churches leave all the People are leaving all the time. Well, I'm going to go over here now. This is not what God has, but look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appear, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly, the old King James says lavishly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the receiving part, right? Now the entering part, so that we being justified by his grace, would, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternity. That's the entering so there's a receiving and there's an entering. We receive faith, we receive grace, and we enter the kingdom of God. Are you in the kingdom of God? You've got to answer that question today. Are you in the kingdom of God? This is the blessing that God has done. Fourth, and finally, look at verse 16 with me in our text. And he took them in his arms, and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. 
Luke 18, verse 16, another parallel text says that Jesus called the children to himself. <laughs> he knew their names. He's calling them. He's, he's the God who gave them life, right? But, but here in Mark, and, and only in Mark, is there's full description of his action in receiving them, this ongoing receiving them, in, in going beyond just the desire to touch them in verse 13. Notice that he takes them into his arms. What a beautiful scene as children are continuously coming to the Lord. Each child is, is seen by this creator himself. Each one he's taking to in his arms and embracing them. Possibly each repetition of his action was rebuking the disciples of what they were trying to do. And so don't miss this beautiful spiritual significance of a creator, savior, loving, embracing those who come by faith. I hope you know when you got saved, Jesus took you in his arms. He embraced you. The thief on the cross hanging there. Man, did the Lord embrace him. Today, you will be in paradise with me. What a reunion as just hours before that, the thief was dead in his sins and there God awakens him on a cross saves him from his sin, and the next moment the Savior himself meets him in paradise and embraces this young man. Notice he blessed them, laying his hands on them. As he drew each child in, you can see the scene here. He drew them in and engaged with them, and one hand comes off and he puts them on her head, and here the word is blessing. It's only used here in this compound way, and it means this fervent and intense blessing. He wants children to know God. He desires them to know the gifting of faith. That's what the Lord is. He desires that all may come to knowledge of Jesus Christ. He knows who it is. He has a decreed will. But he also has this beautiful, desirous will that all his creation would bow down and worship him. And you're seeing this affection flow out on these children. And what greater blessing than the instruction of true faith that he has just been giving let them come. Nobody enters if you don't come this way. Well, this scene just tells us a great deal about Jesus, his kindness, his care, his love for parents and children. He's not a stern, gloomy, joyless man. There's a kind of kind glory that must come from him and children want to run to him. Unfortunately, the world has replaced Jesus with a man who wears a red suit and a long beard. Parents, do your children look at Jesus like that? He's the one who can give me a gift. He's the one I want to run to. I want to get into his lap. Oh, moms, dads, grandparents, you have such a role in this, of teaching the glory of Christ. And your, your life, your example, and your instruction to those little ones, whether that's down the hall here at your home, gives the great opportunity to God to use that so children may one day run up to the Savior and put their arms out. Jesus told the disciples in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let our children see us love one another. In closing, you may be here and you go, I don't know if I'm saved. I think I've always brought stuff to God. 
I think I've always told him how good I am and I'm not like everybody else and I do good things. I think I'm maybe that person. Please don't leave here today. I'll be down in front. There's a prayer room over to my right here. Go talk to somebody. Meet the greeters in the back. Find somebody sitting next to you. Say, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think I've ever come to God empty-handed. I don't think I'm clinging to Jesus Christ. And he will save you. That's what God does. If he moves you to do that, if he pushes in within your spirit, he's drawing you to himself, don't hesitate. Go, go spend some time with him and someone who loves you and can show you the way. Brothers and sisters in this room who claim faith in Jesus Christ, let's not be a hindrance. Let's show the gospel clearly to those that come inside these doors. And let's honor and always put up a Christ the Bible speaks of who loves and draws people to himself. Father, this is a remarkable short little text. It is a text that describes how the, just, the doctrine of justification by faith alone works. It's devoid of anything that we can offer. We could never be justified by law-keeping. It only condemns us. And never be justified by our heritage of who we were born into or where we grew up. None of that would ever save us because our parents were sinners. But there is one way. It's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. A God-given faith that opens our hearts to the need of repentance and the desperate need of a Savior who can bring us into the kingdom of God. There is that kingdom coming, Lord. One day it will come as a bride adorned for her groom. Kingdom of God will be on earth. The kingdom of God will last for eternity. It will shine bright by the glory of Christ. There will be no pain and suffering. All sin will be done away with. Lord, that kingdom is coming. But now we are part of this spiritual kingdom of God. We're servants. We love him. We work for him. He's our master. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not cause stumbling block to any of these little ones, Lord. Whether little in age or little in maturity, Lord, we would never cause them that we would put a clear gospel presentation out. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use this church and you would gather the elderly here, the newly retired, the working families, the empty nesters, and the families with children and the singles. Lord, we want them all. We would beg that you would allow us to do that and help us, Lord, not to deviate from this doctrine of justification. And we pray that you would use us to bring glory to yourself. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.